Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Vivi Lacks. Vivi is a social and cultural historian, Yiddishist, and associate research fellow at Birkbeck, University of London. She is the author of Making Multimedia in the Classroom and has written articles on education and Jewish history. She's also the author of the recently published Whitechapel Noise, Jewish Immigrant Life in Yiddish Song and Verse, London, 1884 to 1914. Welcome, Vivi. Hi. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for taking time to visit, and I know it's a lot later there than it is here. <laughs> yes. Late evening. Yeah. So... Um, I have to ask, what led you in the direction of telling this story? And uh, Were you interested in the music or the telling of the immigrant life in London's East End and the music became a lens? Which came, how did it all come about? Well, I think it came about because I was singing um, songs with a klezmer band. I was singing Yiddish songs. And I went to a talk about a few songs about London. And it was a song collector called Derek Reed, And he was giving a talk in a folk music institution here and um, I just thought that's really fascinating and I took them away with me and um, then went why don't I do one of these with the band and um, what I realized was that they, they, they told stories, they told different stories to Yiddish folk songs which is what I've been doing before because when you start finding out that they have bits about London history in it and English history, they give a very sort of specific view into what we know about the immigrant population in London. Um, so I um, ended up doing a bit of a search and going to old age homes and talking to people and trying to find anyone who knew any songs about London. Um, and in the end, I had like about 15, and I thought that... Um, this, this is great material to do a PhD on. So I went to people and I said, like, I've got 15 songs about London in the Yiddish, and I think they're really interesting. <laughs> and they went, mm, not quite enough material for a PhD. But eventually, when I did convince um, someone to, who was actually very interested in having this as a PhD, and I started the research, I found 400 texts which were basically coupletten rhyming couplets, um, and they were a, a big, big mixture of stuff, and they all told another little bit of this kaleidoscope of a story about London, and about London before the First World War. I mean, I stopped in 1914, because if you got 400 within 30 years, I just thought, like, you know, it's going to be unmanageable. Um, I mean, as it was, I had to cut it down from 400 to 100. How hard was it to find them? Well, what happened was, as soon as I started looking, I realized it wasn't really very hard at all. Because um, Morris Binchevsky, who's a well-known character, sort of to Yiddishists, is one of the sweatshop poets and was called the Zader of Jewish socialism, um, was a poet and was writing material, and he was writing in London. He came to London in 1879, and he lived in London for 15 years. And in that time, he wrote, like, lots stuff that then became very famous um, and so to look for that material all I needed to do was open the newspapers the Polish Yiddel and the Arbeiter Freund um, and the thing about 
researching in, in Yiddish. I mean, you know, if you were going through reading every article, that would be quite hard to find something. But when you're looking for poetry, it stands out on the page, which is, of course, one of the reasons that it's accessible, accessible and it was used by the socialists because of its accessibility. Um, so they were very easy to find, sort of physically. Um, and then when I started looking at other material, and, of course, um, then I, I also knew about the songs because the songs were what I had found. Um, and apart from the song that I found by Vinchevsky, there were musical songs. So then I, I, I started looking at where were musical songs um, published. And, of course, David Mosauer has a lovely private collection. Um, and he had collected some song sheets and as part of his collection, he also had fragments from various song booklets. Um, and I thought, well, this is really fascinating. You know, these London communities started collecting these London songs in London booklets. Um, and so I looked at there's a fantastic book um, by Leonard Prager called Yiddish Culture in Britain. And then he started listing every single song that was ever published either in a song sheet or a song book or listed. He hadn't seen all of them, but he'd seen lists of them. Um, and then following up those leads led me to the um, National Library of Israel in Jerusalem um, and a little bit to YIVO and the British Library and then private collectors. And all of these little leads just led to this massive archive of stuff. All about London. Well, they're, yeah, they, they really do tell a story of Yiddish culture in London's East End. And it's a rich history, which you tell so well. Um, I mean, certainly I come to this with no former you know, sort of understanding of what, was, you know, what this all entailed. And you do a great job of mapping out this story. I wonder if you can provide a little bit of a snapshot of what's to be gleaned here. Well, I think that there's some fabulous Anglo-Jewish histories that have been written that are really useful, interesting, very detailed, and that gave me a fantastic background and understanding to Anglo-Jewish history and the history of the immigrants. But the, there was hardly any use of, of Yiddish sources at all. So I sort of knew that as soon as we got into Yiddish sources, there was going to be something special there because... It, had, it was hidden. Um, but what I was particularly interested in is popular culture, because in popular culture, that's what people are... They're just writing a song for that season in the musical, or they're just writing a poem for that edition of the paper, and then it's gone. And I think the ephemeral nature of it, the, the, the fact that it's not being written for posterity, it's just being written for a specific time, that is what gives you a real sense of what people are talking about, what's important to them, what are they arguing about, what are they crying about. So you get extraordinary material. So if I go back to Vinchevsky, he wrote a series of ballads about children in poverty, and he wrote in his um, memoirs that he, that he was writing about this rancid, all-pervading poverty that he saw around him in London. And they are really beautiful um, and very sad snapshots of children working and trying to make
living and a little girl in Cornhill, which is London's business district, running around going, Kois Metchers, sir, two boxes a penny, a penny the pair. And so this combination of this, like, Yiddish and English put together, which sometimes got called Cockney Yiddish in sort of slang of the East End. Um, and it, it's very evocative. And you've got this little girl in an area where he describes also um, all the business people running around and this huge statue that had been erected a couple of years before and she's standing beside it. And it's sort of transposing this little tiny child with this big stone statue and it's poverty and affluence. And he does this a lot. He creates these images that are very strong and um, really sit in your mind and and that he really wanted people to empathize with that situation and for them to worry about their own children. And his whole push was for the workers to become engaged with politics by engaging with his poetry. So that's one example. Another example, say, if I take one from the music hall. Um, so when I look at the music hall songs and when I found them, they're about everything. They're about work and upward mobility, they're about religion, they're about um, relationships, they're about family, they're about homelessness, they're about so many topics. But out of the 80 songs that I found about London, over half, about 45, the main topic was sex. And it was like sex before marriage, in marriage, outside of marriage, extramarital, unfaithful, um, teenage pregnancy. It was just all this stuff that came up. And it was all about like um, uh, creating comic scenarios of people jumping in and out of windows and like being found in bed with someone else. And you're there going, hang on a second, this is 1903. And I've got all this crazy stuff going on in these songs. And if I give you one example, which is quite a startling one, is there's a song called Ruskes Nishtaheim Sora Gittel, which is Won't You Come Home, Sora Gittel. And it's the story of a man um, looking rather pathetic and trying to get his wife to come home. And she's out in Regent Street. And she's out in Regent Street um, in pubs. She's been kissing a, 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 a goy in a pub and you're there going this is extraordinary material I mean like why on the Yiddish musical stage are they there laughing at a man who's looking rather silly trying to upset trying to get his wife to come home who's, who's out gallivanting in Regent Street um, and then you start sort of like delving into the layers and you go well why Regent Street and Regent Street was known, it was a notorious area, and it was notorious for the fact that it was full of prostitutes. So you're saying, okay, so now he is referencing specifically a place that was known as, a, 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 as where men would be going to try and find women for sex. Um, and there were cartoons about that in the English press, and it was sort of, it was known. So he's using a reference point. So now we're saying, okay, this is a song about a Jewish man trying to get his wife, Sora Gittel, a really sort of old-world name, to come home, and she's out with prostitutes in Regent Street. What is it trying to say? I and 
You want me to keep going? Yeah, yeah, because I, I found this fascinating. I was going to attach the word love and try to make it a little bit more veiled, but it was. It was very sexual and explicit. Um, and keep going. So then you say, well, okay, so on the top of this um, this, this song sheet, it says to be sung to the tune of Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey. And Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey is a ragtime tune that was a pop song of the time. But the, that song was a woman trying to get her husband to come home who was out gallivanting with other women and gambling. So it's completely switching it. It's just like turned the genders around. And then you say, well, why has it done this? So what, what does it say about the immigrant experience? And I guess what it says is that it's really hard for men. They're in Eastern Europe and they're struggling to support their families so they go as economic migrants um, over to England and they're in England and they still can't support their families and so they're struggling. Their wife has to work for hours as well and maybe they take in a lodger as well. So they're doing everything they can to support themselves. But for the man of the house, he's feeling really like... Um, that he can't maintain that role and that it's in question and it, it's a huge identity problem. And then he goes to the musical and he sees on the stage of the musical someone who is in such a worse situation than him. That, you know, he thinks he's got it bad, but this man's really got it bad because his wife's gone off and is running and doing this and that and the other. So there's a real, like, cathartic element of it. And it just tells us something very poignant about then what's happening. They do speak to, I think, sort of the broader cultural issues that these immigrants faced and challenges of acculturation. And also, it's interesting when you describe that, Vivi, you imagine that it gives this gentleman in the audience permission to say, oh, okay, it's not just me. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you also write about code switching of language, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think that, I mean, there's a sort of paradox about it, because one of the overarching themes of the, of the book is how these texts that are written in Yiddish are a force for anglicization. That is, they're really pushing people to become involved in English culture and to, like, ground themselves in England so that they're not immigrants anymore, but they're actually English Jews. Um, and... It, it sort of seems a paradox that you're using Yiddish as a way to become English. And, and one of the ways that it does that is the Yiddish becomes um, uh, inclusive of a lot of English words, so which are, sort of tend to get called anglicisms. So you'll have a, a, um, a, a line like... Um, uh, as an immigrant who comes to England, he says he is bavelkomd. In this case, it's bavelkomd mit a fight. <laughs> so he's welcomed with a fight. But the words bavelkomd and fight are English words. Um, and the word fight is to rhyme with gate or gate in another pronunciation. Um, and so having these words in sort of is a mimicking what people were talking in the East End, and no doubt in the Lower East Side as well, and other, other, other Yiddish diasporas. But um, it 
mimicking what it sounds like in the East End, but it's also pushing people to engage with Englishness. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different Anglicisms that, that, that are used. Um, some of them are done like that, where there are good Yiddish words and they're using English words. Other ones are where there are no Yiddish words. So, for example, in the sweating industry, um, which is in the sweatshops in London, they were called workshops, um, there was what was called the busy season and the slack season. And in Yiddish, that's busy, busy time and slack time, or even busy time and slack time. So they're taking over words because there aren't any. They're not sort of trying to recreate a Yiddish word for it. And I think that's really nice. I mean, that, and it really shows how the sort of jargon of the sweatshop became part of the Yiddish, and the Yiddish is now changing into a Yiddish that includes a lot of English as it sort of develops into the next generation, then talking English and in a way moving so that their English becomes English with Yiddish parts as they, until they become English speakers. At hmm. what place do you think these music halls and they're played in daily life? Sorry, what, what was the place of the music hall? I mean, you, you talk about a lot of different scenarios for people who would drop in and others who would spend many hours there, et cetera. What, can you talk about how this figured into community and how it figured into the immigrant life? Well, the, I mean, the Yiddish theatre was, was um, quite developed all at this time. I mean, it was obviously they had people coming from, from the States and they had um, homegrown actors as well and people would come from Eastern Europe. And there was a whole circuit that, that Yiddish actors would be doing and they'd be doing that on the, muse, on the, on the Yiddish theatre stage. The Yiddish theatre was, even though some of that might have been called shunt rather derogatively, um, even um, that was not what a lot of people wanted. When they were tired, they, they, they just needed something that was simple entertainment and was cheap. And the musical really fitted into that because it was, it was um, pennies rather than shillings, you know, and it was... It, it was um, different things all the time, and it was pop songs. So you'd hear a pop song, you could go, you can go and buy the song sheet for a penny, and you could take it home, and you could sing it with your pals. And it was the entertainment of the time um, that, that was changing constantly. I mean, hence so many songs, um, not just the 80 that, that I mentioned about London, but there were hundreds of songs that were being sung on the musical set stage. So I think it was a very important place. It was an important place for people to meet each other. Um, one of the um, one part of what was happening in the East End, as in other um, cities, was that people would come quite religious from Eastern Europe and would often lose that. And there was growing secularization. And what happened with that is that people lost the place to to have their marriages arranged or um, their families got more fragmented. And so going to the musical was also a place to meet people. 
it became, and, and which is why, you know, when people talk about the theatre and they laugh at the fact that the Yiddish theatre was always noisy and people were eating and they were laughing and they were talking to each other. But of course they were, because that was the place which was their club. That was the place that, you know, they could do that. It, it was a safe place. And, um, they could watch a song and they could chat to their friends and they could flirt with, with whoever. And so I think that it was, it held a very important role. Um, for however long it, 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 it sort of existed there in London. I, I, I loved reading that in your book. You, t you had these little vignettes and you think, oh, of course. Um, and they were, they were just quite charming and very illustrative of you know, what happened within the music hall. Um, is there one particular song that resonated with you or you feel is... It illustrates the story um, in a broader way, or yeah, there's a song by Markovitch, by Joseph Markovitch, called Brivelach von Russland, which I think is very powerful. And I think what it does is that what's interesting about these songs is they're not just local. So they're lo this is a song that mentions London, and it's about um, a woman. Who's in Eastern Europe, and her husband comes over to London and disappears into London and leaves her. So she is uh, an abandoned wife, um, and she's writing him letters. And we're hearing these letters. We're hearing her getting more and more angry with her husband, and that she is there with no one to help her, no way of finding another breadwinner. She can't get a, a divorce from him because he has to give her a get. And she's really in a. Uh, it's a very moving and um, song, and it is illustrative of not just the situation in London, but of course a situation that happens across the Yiddish-speaking world as people were, were men were leaving their families to go and find work and to send them back money, and then sometimes they didn't; they just disappeared until there was an opportunity to go. Um, and this is sort of also the transnational nature of these songs. That the songs are. Um, they're not just about one local experience. They're about a whole series of experiences that all sorts of people can relate to. And in that way, then, this song could get taken over. Markovitz writes it in London. Oops, sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to get bongs from the clock. You might have to cut this out. <laughs> I'll wait a minute. It's okay. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Markovitz might be writing that about London, but in fact, that's going to have just as strong resonances in Chicago or Buenos Aires. I mean, you know, everyone is going to know situations. Um, the situation for abandoned wives, I mean, mm -hmm. was particularly, you know, poignant and people would really have felt that. Everyone would have known someone. I mean, there was a little, um, there's a, there was a, a fabulous um, journal called Der Bloffer, which um, is a bit like Private Eye, I don't know what you have in the state um, but it's a it's um, a satirical journal which aims to to point out hypocrisy and one of the um, columns that it has in it was called der bluffer lach which is the bluffer stronger than the english bluffer it means sort of like the cheat or the deceiver um laughs and it was all these sto little stories little vignettes of 
um, areas of hypocrisy that were happening in the community, and the bluffers are laughing at them. And one of the areas that it draws out is that this man is getting married, and um, he's coming to the chuppah, and at the chuppah, under the chuppah, the uh, family of his wife that he's abandoned in Eastern Europe comes along and brings his wife. And so I think that, you know, and then, then the Lothar is there going, ha, 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 ha. Um, and I think that that's sort of very indicative. So what you get is you get a song like the Markovitz song, and then you get another poem written about the Lothar laughing at that type of hypocrisy. And so you see that this isn't just one isolated thing that's being written about. It's actually being written about over and over again, so that this is a real debate and an issue for discussion that's happening in London. Um, and although the Anglo-Jewish historians might have written about this, what we see is the emotion and the feeling and the mechanism of how things are being debated and how things are a real part of the discourse of the time. Um, and so it's a mixture very moving and very fascinating and it was a fabulous journey. I, I can only imagine uh, what it was like to sort of immerse yourself in this. And uh, one really quick last question about that. Were you surprised how it all unfolded? Um, you know, I was, I think, over three years into my, P into my four-year PhD going, I'm not quite sure of the structure of all this. <laughs> I mean, because there was so much material and the overlaps were big. And so to try and then say, okay, let's, really structure this in a way that that can make sense to a reader, I could have structured it completely differently. I could have done something on work and upward mobility and something on gambling and something, in, and something on anti-Semitism. I mean, there were so many other themes that were emerging and there were 300 texts I didn't use. So, um, and this is only the couplets, so <laughs> just there's a huge amount there. Well, thank you for writing writing the work. Um, I, Can I say one more yeah, thing? Yeah, please. The one more thing I'd like to say is that in the U.S., it's a lot bigger than London. You've got a lot more Yiddishes. You know, Yiddish a lot better than me. And you've got a lot more academic Yiddishes. And this hasn't been done with the New York material. And it has been fantastically collected by James Pepler, who just managed to find all these wonderful songs about, about um, America and life in America and immigrants. Um, so some of the work's been done, and I just think, I really hope that this inspires someone to do something similar. Well, you've put the call out there, huh? <laughs> if you, unless you're going to do it. <laughs> you know what? There's so much left to do in London. I think that I'll probably be kept busy still. Well, Vivi, thank you so much. Again, the book is Whitechapel Noise, Jewish Immigrant Life in Yiddish Song and Verse, London, 1884 to 1914. The book is available through the Yiddish Book Center's online bookstore, yiddishbookcenter.org, or come to the Yiddish Book Center, and you can purchase it in our English-language bookstore. And Vivi... Thank you for joining us. We're looking forward to having you at the Yiddish Book Center next fall for a book talk and signing. Great. I'm looking forward to it, too. Okay. All best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Michael Yashinsky, Education Specialist at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode 16, Lisa Newman's 2012 conversation with Aaron Lansky and graphic designer Alex Isley, who created the Yiddish Book Center's logo, the adorable smiling goat, Siggy. Until next time, be well, be healthy, Zeitgesinnt! <laughs>